Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Bandmasters podcast. If Don Stinson sounds a little strange for you this evening, it's because it's not Don Stinson. My name is Scott Barnes, and um, I've had the pleasure of being on the show with Don a few times as a guest host, and um, I'm going to be flying solo tonight with our guest, Bill Jastro. Um Wonderful band director in Illinois for many, many years. I'm not even sure what we would actually say what district he is most famous for and that he's done wonderful things in all of them. But most recently in the um, Indian Prairie School District and Nequa Valley High School. So uh, let's please welcome our guest, Mr. William Jastro. Thanks for being here tonight, sir. My pleasure, Scott. Looking forward to a good conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the way we normally start this is just kind of a, a basic bio. How did your, 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 your journey as a musician, how did it all start for you? So I, I think I'll just leave it there and let you start. Well, I, I would be the first one to say that I was very fortunate, very lucky to have a continuous line. I, I think I'd almost call it a parade of exceptional musicians and conductors and teachers and role models, all starting with Joel Stratif at Flossmoor, now Parker Junior High School in Flossmoor in fifth grade, and then right through graduate school with John Painter, Don Owens, and Don Casey. Um, without question, Joel Stratif, who eventually ended up teaching at New Trier High School with Jim Warwick and John Thompson, and then Robert Hinesley at Homewood Flossmoor High School were the foundation of my public school music education. Both were terrific and so supportive of me, especially Joel Stratif, who kept me from quitting multiple times. <laughs> uh, Bob Hinesley was unquestionably the person who inspired me to pursue a career in music education. And he remains a dear friend and an inspiration. In many ways, my approach to the job to students, to parents, is a reflection of Bob. The credit for the good fortune I experienced with that string of conductors during junior and senior high school, in large part goes to Joel Stratif. As I remember it, in sixth grade, Mr. Stratif just walked out of his office and handed me two pieces of paper. He told me to go home and get my parents' signature, that this was something I needed to do during the summer. He had handed me a completed application and a full scholarship to Illinois Summer Youth Music. Wow, that's great. For the next seven summers, I went to Illinois Summer Youth Music, ISYM, in many summers for double sessions for band and orchestra. And mm -hmm. as people my generation remember, maybe you do, Scott, back in those days, ISYM were two-week sessions. I remember, yeah. Well, I spent a considerable amount of time on the campus of the University of Illinois at ISYM. Had some great conductors. I had Ed Jones when there was just one Plainfield High School. Wow, yeah. Warren Feltz from West Aurora. But then I hit the trifecta. Uh, going into my sophomore year, I had Dr. Bijan. The next summer, Colonel Gabriel. And the next summer, Dr. Bijan again, as he was just coming to Illinois to follow Mark Hinesley. Mm. As director of bands, and I was just coming to Illinois as an undergraduate freshman. Three amazing summer camp experiences absolutely changed my life. 
So I'm assuming the experience at ISYM affected your decision to do your undergrad at Illinois? Absolutely. That uh, First of all, I had the motivating factor connection between Mark Heinsley and Bob Heinsley at HF. Mm-hmm. That was a strong thing. Obviously, being at ISYM those many summers, I felt very comfortable on campus, at least in the blocks between Allen Hall, Smith Music Hall, and the band building. Mm-hmm. And then having two just incredible experiences with Dr. Bijan. I just, he was the gentleman I wanted to play for. Absolutely. And so you were there during the beginning of his tenure at Director of Bands there? I was in his very first rehearsal with the university band. I got very lucky, Scott, in that I uh, got a placement in the top band as a freshman. Mm-hmm. I played four years for Dr. Bijan in Illinois. And then I got to play for him again as part of the Blue Lake faculty band when they played at Midwest. Mm-hmm. And then they played again at the Illinois All-State and a Michigan All-State. So I had four great years. Dr. Bijan had an amazing simply amazing understanding of the tonal possibilities of a concert band, the kind of sonorities that a band, especially a large symphonic band can produce. And boy, did he have the skill to produce them. I never saw him get in front of any band that didn't within minutes didn't sound better. And that's because he had those sonorities in his oral vision that he constantly chased. Plus he had an uncanny, almost frightening ability to identify and diagnose mistakes uh, that kept everybody on edge. So uh, there was that factor. And then the fact that, um, you know, his artistic standards and his rehearsal expectations were uncompromising. And I'd have to say as, as scary as some people found him to be, he was nervous to play for at times. You had to be on your top game. But in all the years I played for him, both as a student and later as an adult, I never felt he asked any more of myself or the musicians around me than he was willing to give to the band. And I just couldn't see why anybody wouldn't want to play in that environment. Yeah, I've I've only been able to was able to play under a couple times in some guest situations. It's obviously a, a different experience. I always wondered with him, you talked about his knowledge of the sonorities. I mean, was that what I saw from him was just just a presence that he brought there. And even at the end of his life and all that, that, you know, made you raise your game and all that. And even without saying a whole lot, was that what it was like then? Or was there a lot of content he was he was putting forth? Uh, Scott, I think whatever you might have seen in a lot of festival situations or whatever was the low key version of Dr. Bijan. Most oh, I'm sure that the quick and intense pace at which the university band rehearsed, boy, that resulted in total engagement of everybody, mm-hmm. either by your choice or his will <laughs> for every measure, every note, every minute, and not just at a technical level. He, he was at an artistic level. And one of the things that I learned for, from playing for him for so many years was just about everything you needed to know about the music you could see in his conducting and in his eyes. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. yeah, There was an energy that came off the podium that was unbelievable. I have played for a few people. Colonel Gabriel might be the other choice where the amount of energy coming off the podium was so motivating and so driving in a very 
artistic way, in a very demanding way, but in a very mm-hmm. professional way. I also found out, and this is why always, always looking at the podium when Dr. Bijan was conducting was critical. Mm-hmm. I truly believe everything he needed to know about your commitment to the music, he could see in your eyes. Mm-hmm. So it was a good thing to be looking back when he came your way. <laughs> Well, you know, for, for anyone who's not been at the band building at at uh, at the University of Illinois, I mean, there's the there's the legend there. There's these large, large, literally larger than life portraits of the directors of bands, people who've served in that position. And, you know, Beejan's Beejan's eyes in that picture, man, right. they follow you. They they, they follow you, you know, and like Abraham, OK, I'm going to practice, really. Yeah. 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 You know, before we move, move on. I, I need to share with everybody that uh, for me and, and for my wife, who was in the band all those years, the musical rewards we experienced playing for Dr. Bijan are still vivid and treasured memory. That's how impactful he was as a conductor and as an educator. And that those dark, rich, woodwind-centered sonorities and balances that he achieved, those have served as models for me forever. Playing in that band under his baton was worth every dime of tuition. If I had taken no other courses but that, that would have been that would have been fine. And that's the sentiment that I, I I've heard from people who actually who did that full experience with him that way. I mean, it, there there is that that dedication that you as students bring back to him that it was a special thing to have been a part of. You know, so. Yeah. Um, well, let's see, you asked about uh, getting me started, and obviously Bob and Joel Strada right. got me started as a player, but getting me started as a teacher, um, I think the next people I'd like to share with you, because one of them has a connection to Joliet High School, mm. that I had the good fortune of student teaching with Ray McKeever at Ottawa Township High School, and Ray goes back to A.R. McAllister, ah. a principal and solo trumpet player with the Joliet Band as a high school student. And then the other person I got to student teach with in Ottawa was John Kinnison at Shepherd Junior High School. Okay. And then they had built such a terrific program over the years in this town out in the middle of Northern Illinois Mm -hmm. that uh, John Christie, who eventually ended up teaching up in the Libertyville area, I also had some engagements with John and all three of these guys, again, were excellent musicians, exceptional teachers and boy the the best cooperating teachers I could have ever asked for and have been lifelong memories and, and mentors and friends uh, and at the time just you know may be thinking about this knowing my history at the time my student taught with him Ray was the ILMEA state president ah. John Kinnison as you probably know was actively involved in district ILME activities, and shortly after he retired, became our second second executive director. Mm-hmm. And at one time, Bob Hinesley was the band division vice president. So the I message remember. was very clear to me. Yeah. <laughs> Being actively involved in ILMEA was part of the job description, not an option. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, definitely that. So, um a little bit about your 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 career as a teacher. You started, was it Cole City you started at? Started at Cole City High School, yeah. Um, I was the only music teacher at the high school. Uh, I was hired as the band director. 
And in the interviews, I was told that there was a chorus that met as a club once a week and that that would be my responsibility. By the time I got to uh, Cole City uh, preschool in August, I found out the school board had decided to make the choir an academic course during the day. Wow. And in those days, uh, I, I think it has changed. I certainly hope it has. Um, in those days, the only vocal music requirement at the University of Illinois of instrumental majors was a one semester course in art song. Hmm. Definitely something that was going to help me teach a yeah. high school choir. Yeah, um, but by the time it, it, it might be different now, of course, you know, but I, I remember we had to do one semester of choral conducting, which was better than nothing. Yeah. But, you know. Well, I, I tapped into a lot of, of colleagues to get some information and some background. I was very fortunate in the five years I taught at Cole City that I had great student accompanists or I would have really been in trouble in that in that score. And uh, by the by the time I left, we had a pretty credible group. We have a good eye to say and get a good performance that we felt good about. But uh, that was that was a change. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing I remember distinctly, and at the time it seemed like a positive, it really wasn't. But in the five years I was there, never once did anyone come into my rehearsal room to observe, evaluate, critique, offer suggestions. Um, on the one hand, I was making lots of mistakes and I was smart enough to know most of them and try to solve them. But it sure would have been nice to have had somebody come in and give me some feedback in avoiding problems. Yeah, I, I had an experience like that back in the day as well, too. And yeah, at the time you're thinking, well, this is great. Everyone's just staying out of my way. But yeah. you, you, you look at it and it, it that feedback is, is, is crucial. And and that's where I think bringing in trying to seek the advice and counsel of of experienced directors and whatnot and everything is, is, is a good thing for those young teachers. You've always been one of those people for me and I've always appreciated that who I'm curious who, what kind of who are those who were those people for you as a young teacher people well, out in I the field I definitely drew on Ray McKeever and John Kinnison um, because of the connection I had just immediately had with with both of them as far as them watching me teach obviously Bob Hinesley was still a source of information but Bob hadn't seen me teach um, and Ray and John had, so they were a, a good source and probably the most direct source at the time as far as them knowing what I was dealing with, working in a small school situation and trying to take some of the things that I had seen work so successfully at Ottawa and apply them to Cole City. And that was one of the first mistakes I made that I realized by semester break, that Cole City wasn't Ottawa. And you can't just take somebody's, somebody else's program and layer it over the top of another community. You've got to adapt and build and, and change. Um, I will share one great Ray McKeever story that was impactful in those Cold City days and has remained so that uh, toward the end of my student teaching experience, uh, we were coming up to a winter concert early December sometime. And, and Ray had given me the opportunity to conduct two pieces with both of his bands. 
And one of the pieces that I was working with with a top band, which was an incredibly fine high school band at that time, mm-hmm. was a piece called Sonner Jensen's Sondag. It's a Scandinavian folk song, very lyrical, pretty piece. And Ray had told me I had the entire period for the rehearsal to do the warm up, to work as long as I wanted to on the piece, and that if he didn't do anything that day, it was totally fine, do my job. So I did the warm up and about 20, 25 minutes into the rehearsal, I felt like we had reached nirvana with this piece. Everything was fine. Nothing more that I needed to say or could be done. So I stepped off the podium and said, thank you to the students. So as I'm walking away and Ray's walking toward the podium, he just stops right by me and says, do you mind if I touch on a few things? So for the remainder of the period, a good 25 minutes, he modeled in his very uniquely distinctive way what I should have heard, what I should have been drawing out of the score, and what I should have been providing to the students. And then the best part about that lesson was at the end of the rehearsal, kids walked out. He had nothing negative to say. He simply said, work on the march tomorrow. Hmm. I can't tell you the number of times I have revisited that lesson for myself when I was a young teacher. And then there have been multiple times when I have felt the need to reenact that lesson with my student teachers. Uh I hope I was as understanding as Ray was. That was his style. So that's why I felt so comfortable in going back to him and asking for help or suggestions and ideas. You know, I'd send him recordings of rehearsals and he'd be kind enough to send me comments or better yet most of the time he'd just call me so ray mm-hmm. was a huge influence obviously you know i was taking things i'd learned from other conductors but i was really sort of isolated in those days either by the way the school system was set up or me either thinking i knew a lot or not wanting to admit what i didn't know all of those things that new teachers go through right right so um, I guess maybe highlights between that position and where you eventually made your way to, to Niqua and Indian Prairie. Well, um, I was at Coal City for five years and had reached a point where I felt like there were all these things that I didn't know. I had come to that understanding of my own skills and ability that I felt it was a good time to go back to grad school for master's. And I didn't particularly want to uh, do the summer thing. I wanted to be on campus. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to get an assistantship at Northwestern with Terry Applebaum in the percussion department, and then an opportunity to play for John Painter in the wind ensemble. So I remember going into the superintendent in, in Cole City and telling him that I had the assistantship I could get the classwork done in a summer and a year and a summer and that I would come back to Cole City. I enjoyed the town. The program was growing. I liked the kids. And the response was, we've never done that, so I don't think we can do it for you. Hmm. And I said, I can't turn this down. And I left. Um, The great thing about um, Northwestern was, again, it provided a different perspective Playing for John Painter was a different atmosphere than playing for Dr. Bijan. 
different kind of ensemble, truly a wind ensemble. Mm -hmm. It was a big symphonic band. They were rehearsing on a three to four concert per semester schedule where Illinois was doing maybe two right. semesters. So it was a totally different pacing and, and a different approach, which it was good for me to see. I also got a chance to take coursework from Bennett Reamer. And uh, Bennett Reamer helped me take a lot of practical approaches that were spinning around in my mind about music education and what my job really was and helped me to form a philosophy. I really appreciated Bennett's classes, though. I think if you speak to anyone who took a class from Bennett, you'll, they'll tell you that by the end of his coursework, you were proofreading your own name. Hmm. So detailed in what, his, in what you handed in for writing that, uh, but boy, he, he taught me a lot. So Northwestern really propelled me forward. From there, I was very fortunate to get the job at Glenbard South which included a uh, position not only as the director of bands, but also the department chairman for the music department. Uh, was there for 10 years, and again, it was a good program, but I was looking to maybe get into a slightly bigger program. Len King was retiring from Rolling Meadows in District 214, and you know that district has a reputation statewide for lots of very positive things. I was very fortunate to get the job at Rolling Meadows. Uh, and then very unexpectedly, just three years later, I get the call from Bob Hinesley that he's going to retire age-wise earlier than I would have expected. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott, as I'm sure you'd understand, there is no way I could turn down a phone call from Mr. Hinesley. And then when the job was offered, that was, that was coming home. Absolutely. Uh, and Thoroughly enjoyed my job there working with Mike Rogers and, and Mike Rugen and Sue Pollock. And that's that's a dream staff. To it sure is. And, and, you know, you know what the facilities were like and, and everything else. It was a great job. Uh, what caused me to leave HF really was nothing to do primarily with the school. I'll, I'll qualify that in a minute. Um, my family situation had changed. The health of my parents had changed. We were still living in Naperville and I was commuting. That was before 355 was in place. Right. And I got to a place where I needed to locate closer to home. And those were the years when uh, Chip Staley, uh, Indian Prairie was exploding school-wise. Chip was, I think, hiring four, five, six, eight music teachers a year. Yeah, the number of schools that were opening, and Chip frequently called me and asked if I'd have a student teacher I'd recommend. And I distinctly remember one morning I was about to walk into symphonic band rehearsal. Phone rings. I pick it up. It's Chip. Bill, I'm looking for teachers. If you got a student teacher, we have an opening at Nequa Valley for a band director. And I said, "Sorry, Chip, I haven't anybody this year. I've got to go rehearsal." He said, "Thanks. See ya." Well, on the drive home that night, I'm thinking, Nequa Valley's got a job for a band director, and I live five minutes away mm -hmm. from Nequa. Would they consider? Well, very fortunately, Chip and the administration did consider, and that's why I made the move. Absolutely. Well, I remember, and I remember that at the time, and I'm thinking 
and I'll we'll get to that in a little bit. But my lord, what an amazing combination! Now we have the two of you together and stuff like that. And and I think we saw the results of that from your program over the years too. But we'll we'll get to that, you know. But you'd mentioned Bennett Reamer before, and that actually brings me to one of the first things I wanted to ask you from a curriculum standpoint, because, and I'm sure there are others doing it, but at least in terms of my observation of your program as a young teacher, you were one of the first that I really saw putting those concepts in what we call now comprehensive musicianship and putting those into practice in, in those performance classes. And so, I mean, what I was going to ask you is how did you come to that approach? But is that, was a lot of that Bennett Reamer? Well, a factor of it was, uh, I'd have to say the graduate studies at Northwestern, those courses I had with Bennett, helped connect what I initially sort of took that comprehensive musicianship was a teaching strategy, sort of an approach to a rehearsal. And the classes with Dr. Reamer really turned that more into a philosophy of music education. Um, if I go back further, Scott, I think my interest in comprehensive musicianship as an approach to rehearsal instruction traces back to my time in Illinois. Okay. Specifically, I think to the research I did for the Over the Hills and Far Away album biographical notes on Percy Granger. Mm -hmm. And then for sure, my interactions with Mary Hoffman. Professor Hoffman deserves the credit for planting that seed. I just didn't do much to grow it when I was in Coal City. I, I was too busy trying to keep my head above water. And basically I was following the model of what a band director did to be successful by all of those people I'd observed from fifth grade through ISYM and college. You know, mostly they were uh, technicians and interpreters and they created fantastic ensembles. So I was trained to do that by the university. And that was the model I was following. It was just Mary that planted that there could be more to it than this. And it took me a while. And then, you know, the Northwestern courses helped. What what actually locked that in more, I think, Scott, was over the years, um, I that desire to pursue that comprehensive approach from everything from rehearsal lessons to curriculum writing was reignited and reinforced by reading lots of authors. Um, Daniel Pink, Ken Robinson, Charles Fowler, more recently, David McGill, but especially, and I know a lot of directors that might be listening to this, the Edward List Creative Director Series Mm -hmm. and Robert Duke. And you put all that together and what I synthesized out of that, what I learned was that in addition to instilling the love of music in my students, which is usually the response I get when I ask young high school students why they want to go into music education, Uh or even student teachers, I probably said it once. Right. I figured out that my primary responsibility was the development of their musical intelligence and their artistic creativity, and that my position as a band director simply provided me with a performance ensemble through which I could authentically meet the needs of that responsibility. For me, that meant effective teaching from the podium had to begin with a vision of students as not only skilled, technically skilled musicians, but literal, excuse me, literate and thinking musicians 
Each of them had the capacity for developing their own musical intelligence and creativity. I didn't have to dictate to them if I was willing to step away. I also came to realize and I think this is true, at least I believe it's true. <laughs> Regardless of what has been taught and drilled in rehearsals, the ultimate musical decisions that take place during any performance are primarily in the hands of the musicians sitting in front of the conductor. Be they all state musicians or hyper excited second graders with boom whackers. <laughs> we're, just, we're just waving batons. The students are making the musical decisions or not at that point based on what you've taught them. And I believe it's the quality of a student's musical decision making that eventually determines the musical quality of an ensemble. If you put that in a performance, I'm sure you've had this experience as a conductor. You've been in a concert and something's not going right, and yet the students don't seem to be responding or correcting it. Right. Or you've listened to something on a tape that was obviously out of tune for a long amount of time or out of balance for a long amount of time, but the students didn't correct it. How come? You know, what was the reason for that? And then if you take that same concept that the quality of a student's musical decision determines the quality of the ensemble, put that into a rehearsal. In when I the early years of when I was teaching, and that's more than the five years of Cole City. Right. It, I was the students were waiting for me to tell them everything. Crescendo here, play this detached, the phrases here, shape it. They were waiting for everything. And so all the rehearsal time had to go to that. If I have students that I've taught more about structure and music theory and performance practice, etc and have told them, I want them to make musical decisions. I want them to make interpretive decisions on phrasing and shaping, et cetera. And then they need to watch the podium. I'll let them know one way or the other if they made a good decision or not. But the worst thing is to make no decision. They need to be creative contributors. So the quality of students listening and the depth of their musical knowledge really determines the level of their understanding. I also found out that determines their confidence to make those in the moment independent decisions where they feel comfortable. And I, you know, I think about it, Scott, if you think about the musical decisions that we make when we're performing, and those decisions are a result of not only our technical and oral skills, but think about what we bring to the stage musical theory knowledge, musical style, composer background, performance practice. And we apply all of that at times in moments, just from cues from a conductor or from what we hear around from the musicians around us. We're not waiting for somebody from the podium to tell us what to do. We're certainly not waiting in performance. Well, this is out of balance, but until he tells me to play soft, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to just keep playing these simple crashes. It, you know, right. it just keeps going. So I think what, what happened with me, Scott, is that when I finally was willing to step back from primarily just identifying technical errors and dictating interpretation to attempting to introduce and develop and by students the spectrum of skills and knowledge that I have as a musical performer and as a consumer of music, that's when the comprehensive musicianship approach began to blossom in my teaching. It took a long time to get 
somewhere. It wasn't an overnight thing. I think it, it, I think it takes a lifetime or at least maybe several years, even for us as teachers to acquire that knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and for us to be able to impart those musical decisions, or at least the, the, to give them that ability to do so. Yeah. I I totally agree for, for me. um, That was a paradigm shift in score study and rehearsal planning and teaching style. When when I talk about this, I've often had a chance to talk to the FMES students, the future music educator students Mm -hmm. at Allstate. And I share with them this experience I've had about the importance of teaching more than just the technique and dictating interpretation. And I like to think of it as a modulation to a parallel key. You know, Mm. basically it's the same repertoire I was picking with the same technical challenges, but it included parallel content. And it included the compositional and historical elements that I felt were needed to realize and value the intent of the composer. Now, I'm guessing you're gonna have some people watching this. I was one of them at one point saying, I don't have the rehearsal time to do this. Let me emphasize that initially, I tried to teach this whole umbrella about the piece. That was a mistake that I learned quickly from. What I learned was what you want to teach are the compositional and historical knowledge needed to understand and perform a composition by a composer. Okay. That that simply teaching Mozart was uh, a classical period composer born in, what was it, 1791 or died in 1791. Yeah. That valuable on Jeopardy, but doesn't help anyone appreciate or perform his music. But, and I eventually developed a a unit called Mozart as the Model, having familiarity and understanding of classical style as exemplified by Mozart's music, that is valuable interpretive performance knowledge. If you're going to perform Italian in Algiers, you better know what classical accompaniment sounds like. And if you're going to perform Pineapple Paul, you better have an understanding of classical sound and structure and form. So it's, it's teaching what's needed to perform the piece better and understand and appreciate the piece better. Not everything about the Baroque period if you're doing a Bach piece. You don't have that kind of time. Totally believe that. And I would think over the course of a time in your program, if you're doing enough of that, the idea is that they're going to leave with that kind of foundational knowledge. You're going to know, hopefully, those differences between Baroque and classical and romantic and, and their approaches on their instruments. I would say particularly with our instruments, you know, as, oh, yeah. as, as a band person, how, you know, how the winds physically change and how the approach changes, you know, things like that. Well, there, there's just so many things you can, can teach, and it, it certainly depends on the repertoire you pick. And I also found out, Scott, and I'd certainly recommend this, if you're programming for a concert with, say, four pieces, maybe there's one major work that you're doing a comprehensive approach to, that maybe there's a second one where you're doing some, maybe the other two not, because you don't have rehearsal time to do it on all four pieces. You also probably don't have the prep time unless you're doing a piece you've done before and you can bring in something that you've mm-hmm. used before and modify it. 
you're, you're limiting it too. One of the things that I found successful, and I've used this many times now that I'm getting festival conducting engagements, is developing what I call a rehearsal guide, a one-page sheet that covers a composition, maybe a little history, could be a little form, it could be some theoretical terminology, it could be things to look out for, it can vary depending on what the piece is. This is something the students are going to have? This is something I would give to the students. Okay. So it's like a one-page textbook. And you would maybe introduce part of it before you sight read. Maybe it's the things to look out for. Um, Frank Erickson's Rhythm of the Winds. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, you take a look down at where it says things to look out for. Notice in this piece, Frank Erickson has no key signature. And yet he changes keys constantly. It's an accidental nightmare. Be aware that there is no key signature. You have to be on top of your game. So those kind of of bullet points that you look out for. Anyway, I found those rehearsal guides helpful because I could refer to them a week later. Can you pull out rehearsal guide on the Sousa March? Let's take a look again at Sousa's performance practices as how he arranged his marches so they sounded distinctive for the Sousa band, not how they were published. How can we use those? in our arrangement. That became very useful. And I've, especially in a festival situation where time is limited and you have to give the kids a amateur break. My trick is I'll step off the podium after an hour, say, ladies and gentlemen, the next piece up is, would you please take five minutes to look over the rehearsal guide before we start? Okay. Absolutely. Well, this kind of, I want to touch on one more thing about the comprehensive musician thing. And I I think you've touched a lot of it, but maybe to sum that up, a high school musician, you know, that's graduating from your program. I mean, what are the, what do you want, what kind of knowledge do you want them to leave with besides the obvious basics of how to read and play their instrument? This is a good follow-up question, Scott, because my answer is directly connected to my belief in comprehensive musicianship as a pillar to music education. And uh, I will compliment you on that this is a question I typically pose when I'm asked to advise (laughs) on curriculum writing. Um, So my answer falls into sort of three components. Uh, One, I definitely believe that a graduate has to have an enhanced level of musical literacy and cultural awareness. The majority of the students that leave a high school program are not going to be performers, but they could be great consumers. We want them to be consumers of good music. So it's their musical literacy and cultural awareness, not their performance skills that they take with them. Right. However, number two, I also believe they should have an at least an enriched appreciation of his or her creative skill in the art of music. So that when they go and listen to the Chicago Symphony, they can appreciate the quality of artistry that they're listening to. Or they can go, boy, the Chicago Symphony had a bad night. (laughs) They understand the difficulties that those human beings on stage are approaching. And then the, the third point, I think they ought to have an understanding of Gustav Mahler. <laughs> Is that too much to expect? <laughs> no. Well, Specifically, I mean, I, huh? I, mean, I say that in clinic sessions and teachers look at me like, why did we hire him? <laughs> uh, it's an understanding of at least a quote 
attributed to Mahler and quotes this. If a composer could say what he wanted to say in words, he would not bother with the music. Mm. I believe a graduate should have the capacity to sense the musical expression of thoughts and emotions, which we know cannot be adequately expressed through words or numbers or depicted in images. That's, that's my three. But I have a follow-up question if you've got time. Oh, of course. Okay, my alternative question is this. What is the primary objective of K-12 through music education? Oh, and man. my answer, my answer is to develop musicians. And I credit my thinking on that to Steve Squires. Okay. When I posed that question to the 204 Music faculty at an institute day, not surprisingly, very few people agreed with me. Those educators, like most people, assumed that by musicians, I meant students capable of pursuing a career in performance. To be clear, I did not say performers. I said to develop musicians. The primary objective should be to develop individuals possessing the skills and knowledge and experience to think like musicians. Math teachers, this is the part that I learned from Steve. Okay. Math teachers strive to teach students to develop mathematicians, not necessarily individuals to pursue a career in mathematics, but adults who can think and use mathematics. No one questions the value of that learning. And I haven't used my trigonometry since high school, but I value my need for mathematics and my ability to use it. Same with English. No one questions our value to be able to read and write, to communicate. I'm not a professional journalist, not an author, but as a professional educator, and I know you'd agree, and everyone listening will, we frequently need to communicate, most often through the printed word, and we can't, we can't afford to have poorly written, misspelled communications going out to parents. Oh, amen. Amen, sir. <laughs> so I value my ability to think like a writer, as well as my ability to think like a historian. And thanks to my Hall of Fame list of music educators, my ability to think and listen like a musician, both in my rehearsals and just outside of my classroom. So I believe that a graduate should know how to think like a musician and value the preservation of our art form as part of our culture. Absolutely. I, I, I could not agree more. And that's, this is, this is one of the main reasons we, we wanted to have you on here uh, to be talking about that. So I really appreciate that. Let me shift uh, gears. I'll, I'll leave you with this. You know, that uh, ILMEA is going through some transformation, right? In their relationships with national, et cetera. Right. I, you know, for, for many years, I have encouraged my student teachers and even some of my colleagues to not label themselves as band directors. That sort of pigeonholes us into an activity rather than a teacher. But maybe we should not view ourselves as music educators either. We are musician educators and we're cultural engineers. That's the association we're part of. I like that a lot. Yeah. I like that. And, you know, really, as as a, as a kid, you know, I thought of my my music teachers as musicians, 
You know, I mean, and I think in, in somehow in my mind, I thought they were, you know, you know, by night out jobbing and stuff like that too. And they may very well have been, you know, but, but I, I thought of them as that, you know, so I think that, that, that this distinction is important. That's probably a good way for us to think of ourselves. That's, I learned that lesson early on when I was in high school, um, Wednesday nights for the rehearsal night for the Chicago Heights Symphony Orchestra. Francis Akos, who at the time was an assistant principal of the Chicago Symphony under Schulte, mm-hmm. was the conductor. And both Bob and Jane Hinesley were in that orchestra. I was the percussionist on call. Okay. On many Wednesday nights, Bob and Jane stopped by and picked me up, took me to rehearsal. And that was my first experience playing sort of in an adult group with classical orchestra music. But that was my first experience in watching not only Bob and Jane, but I knew the band director, Crete Moni, at the time, and a couple of other local band directors. And there they were playing their instruments, some on principal parts. And it was my experience of, wow, these people do other things. Yeah, <laughs> they, are, they are musicians like me. This is a, a bar to raise up to. And I think it's important for our students to to see that, you know, if you don't mind, can we switch some gears and some into some nuts and bolts um, a bit? Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about Indian Prairie. One of the things, both before you arrived there, um, and then of course during that time, that I was always very impressed with over there, is just how um, organized and synergetic the whole program is from beginners to high school. Um, they're just the, the the act just seems to be really really together and organized that way and everyone having their own role and all that. Could you and I don't know if it's something a question that's quickly answered or easily maybe a better word to say, but a little bit about how that program is set up from from a scheduling and staffing standpoint. And are there any other initial steps that school districts might be able to make and improve that scheduling using that as a model? <sighs> Where to start with that one, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> um, for, first of all, I need to be fair. There, your description of the program is, is accurate. However, within that bubble of teachers, and while I was working as the coordinator for the 204 music program, I believe we had 80, 85 music educators, K through 12. So as you can expect, even though there was this unified philosophy and this unified direction and this umbrella curriculum and all these collaborative connections, there's still independent music educators out there that, you know, their tempo goes a little this way, tempo goes a little that way, their focus is here, somebody else's focus is there. So it's not all as lockstep as it may seem. Okay. But there was a consistent philosophy. Uh, It was a very broad philosophy about presenting a diversity of high quality musical experiences for every student and as well as a service to the community. And it's definitely a program that's anchored in collaboration rather than competition between schools, whether it's Mm -hmm. schools within 204 or schools outside of 204, that, that just was not part of the game. Um, So, you know, a lot of times I had, middle school band directors coming to me going, well, I'd sure like to have my group perform at Allstate. And I'd have to have a conversation with them about, you know, that's that's something we generally keep under control. We have to look at that very carefully. And I think in the 
what's going on 20 years now that I've been connected with 204, one middle school band has gone to uh, Super State. Okay. And it's not because we don't have good bands. It's just the focus is, is in a different place. Um, the structure of the program actually changed significantly, Scott, uh, not while I was teaching at NEQA, but while I was in that coordinator position, we moved from a fifth grade start for our beginner instrumentalist to a sixth grade start. Okay. And that shuffled the cards around. Um, there were lots of reasons behind that. Some of it was financial. Some of it was a staffing cut that took place prior to us making that move. Some of it was uh, related to the Charlotte Danielson intensity that was being put on classroom teachers because the, the instrumental program that Chip Staley designed and put into place, because for many years, Chip was not only the department chair and the band director at Wabansi, he was the coordinator for the whole district. I remember, yeah. So he had three hats to wear, including through most of that explosion of, of enrollment. And Chip put into place a dual curriculum for the, <clears throat> pardon me, dual curriculum for the instrumental program. Part of it was a full ensemble experience. The other part was a technical class experience. So that five days a week, the students were going to an ensemble rehearsal during school. Once a week, they were going to a 25 to 30 minute small group technique class, you know, instrument-based technique class that had a specific curriculum from beginners through high school. The concern that we started to face when the Danielson model and then the state of Illinois started changing the parameters for evaluating all teachers and that the notification came out that classroom teachers are going to be evaluated based on student achievement, test scores, all of that was now a component of a classroom teacher's evaluation. Suddenly, a lot of teachers were getting nervous about us pulling kids out, even if it was just once a week for a band or orchestra lesson. And even though we found all kinds of research, and you probably still can, that that kind of technique pullout really has minimal, if any, effect on student grades and accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But the perception from teachers was concerning, as it was from parents. They're decreasing in concern about grades. Uh, even my own son, who's an elementary teacher in the 204 system, when that issue about evaluating teachers came about, came to me, Dad, Dad, this is going to be a concern. He wasn't even teaching fifth grade at the time, but he was hearing from his colleagues. Um, so we decided to be proactive. Uh, the other thing I witnessed as a, a coordinator, especially in a lot of our schools that were serving underprivileged families, families that were stressed out in lots of different ways, economically, socially, that the beginning band program at the fifth grade level consisted of two band rehearsals before school a week and one technique class during the day. Well, I would go and watch some of those early morning rehearsals. They'd start at 7.25, 7.30. And some of the students weren't arriving till 8 o'clock, mm. 8.05. And I found out that wasn't a reflection on the teacher on the podium. 
that was a family whose that student had to walk to school. Or that was a family who had to drop off two other children at daycare before they dropped off the student at school before they went to work. All of those complications, Scott, I'm sure you can imagine many more. Oh, yes. So, you know, the discussion was how much instruction are they losing? And how much do we gain by having sixth grade beginners meet five days a week in a regular middle school class and still have their technique class, except now their technique class will be during their band period or orchestra period, which meant all those classes had to be double staffed. Okay. So right now, all of our middle schools have this setup. They have a sixth grade program that offers three courses, two upper string sections, one lower string sections, two teachers. One does the ensemble part on a given day, the other technique lessons. In the band world, there's a woodwind section, a brass section, and a percussion section. And the same thing, two teachers for the woodwinds and the brass, only one for the percussion. That works out for each building, two band directors, two orchestra directors, one vocal director. And that's pretty much locked in. That for the district to change the staffing, they would have to pretty much change the curriculum that the board approved when we made this shift. That would probably not be received well. <laughs> and um, go ahead. Well, just from um, uh, that was there were there challenges from a facility standpoint from. The- no, not, not really, because the, the rehearsal rooms uh, were designed for that. Actually, <laughs> one of the things that worked for us in being able to structure three, str- three sections of strings was that in our new, newer middle schools, Scullin, Crone, Granger, um, who else am I thinking about? Whatever. Mm-hmm. The orchestra rooms are small. Okay. And so it forced us just because you can't put too many upper string players bowing each other sitting next to each other it required us to go two sections of upper strings which just made that an easy justification we also had other spaces that were available rooms that weren't being used stages in middle school that just down the hall technique classes the newer middle schools also have a large room that can be used for as many as maybe five or six students at a time the soundproofing isn't ideal, but for sixth grade band and orchestra, it works out okay. Right. Um, then at the seventh and eighth grade level, there's usually two sections of seventh grade, two sections of eighth grade band and orchestra. There's a group that's an audition group for orchestra and band that meets two, two days a week before school. And there's also a jazz group or a fiddler's group that meets. So the there's sort of an honors so to speak, though we don't use that terminology, mm-hmm. um, combined group. Those are usually the groups that you might hear in a festival or Igsmar, something like that, those combined. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, one, fu- and I, I appreciate all of that too. Um, and with, with my own district, we're, we're thinking about it. COVID is, is, presenting an opportunity maybe to sometimes restructure some things. Lots of, lots of programs didn't start beginners this year 
um, no. when you're remote. And so it, it does present maybe an opportunity to, to rethink some of that stuff. So I'm hoping that that can, I, that was valuable for, for me to hear. And I'll be bringing that back to my colleagues and hopefully our, our listeners. Uh, can I will share too. this, Scott, because it goes back to my comment about your description of the program was accurate, but within mm. that universe, there are different factions that change to sixth grade required that some teachers who for years have been teaching nothing but fifth grade band. Now we're teaching sixth grade beginners, no problem. Mm-hmm. But they were now also teaching seventh and eighth grade concert band. Ah, that was a change. Right. It also required some teachers who had been teaching seventh and eighth grade band for years had to go back to their methodology books and remember, how do I start an oboe player? <laughs> Some of our teachers adapted to that very well. Others, it was a little bit like going to the dentist. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it took some time and some, <coughs> some additional work on institute days. I know we brought in Bruce Pearson for one of our institute days to talk about, you know, beginning instrument pedagogy. Right. Well, um, I, I want to touch on one final thing. I cannot let a conversation with Bill Jastro uh, go by without talking about percussion and percussion education. <laughs> okay. I think people would virtually throw things at me if I did not. So, I mean, care and feeding of that, of that young percussionist. <laughs> you know, what do you think the most important things that us non-percussionist directors should keep in mind when, when working with them at the junior high and high school level? What is most often missed? Um, I think two things come to mind, Scott. The first is the importance of the four components of percussion tone production. I'll explain. This may take a while. It's okay. Um, Ken Robinson's one of my favorite authors, and he defines creativity as applied imagination. I love that definition. Yeah. Creativity is applied imagination. I like that. And one of the intrinsic rewards of being a percussionist myself is the opportunity to apply my imagination, to be creative with truly a vast and diverse palette of timbres in my attempt to interpret percussion parts in some manner that, you know, enhances the vision of the composer and the sound of the ensemble. I like to think of it as analogous to trying to match or enrich the tints and hues of the paint used by visual artists. Okay. Because the thing that just fascinates me about percussion, the world of percussion is all about tone colors. Yeah. It's just intriguing to me. So yes, the importance of developing rhythmic and hand coordination skills in a beginning percussionist, that goes without saying. But I believe it's equally important that the effort be made to focus on engaging a student's percussion imagination and developing a vocabulary of percussion timbres in order for them to creatively apply that imagination. And I believe that effort should start with the first lesson so you've got a student there with a practice pad, probably, right. hopefully, and a yeah. pair, of, pair of sticks. So you simply ask them, how many different timbres can you create striking your practice pad? Or you ask them, how many different sounds can you create simply striking your sticks together? 
In conjunction with the development of technical skills, I think a critical part of a percussion curriculum has to be the structured development of the oral skills capable of perceiving subtle differences in timbres. Can a young student strike their drumsticks just normally and then squeeze their hand and tighten the stick and hit it again and hear the difference? Because mm -hmm. there is a difference to a percussionist and that's one of the things we want a young student to hear. So I believe a way of teaching that is to teach it and reinforce it and constantly challenge percussionists on the four components of percussion tone production. Number one, what you strike, the instrument and how the instrument's tuned. So the best example I might be able to share with people that everybody would know, Amparata Overture. Right. The woodblock part. Uh-huh. Okay. So the student gets the woodblock part, they go to the percussion cabinet, they pull out the drawer. These days, I would think in most schools, there's at least two woodblocks, maybe three or more. But what do most students do? They'll grab whichever one is closest to the front, mm -hmm. the one that's the color they like, the one that's cracked. They'll <laughs> grab whichever one, and that's the one they're stuck with. As opposed to my challenge as a conductor, looking back at my section would be, can you go get all the wood blocks? Why didn't you bring all the wood blocks? I want you to try all the wood blocks. Because you know in the music, the composer didn't indicate the size of the wood block, the color of the wood block, nothing about it. That is up to your imagination to decide. The second component is what to strike with. Sticks, mallets, beaters, um, rat tail files, knitting needles, <laughs> you know, there's a plethora of stuff. And even um, small school programs these days probably have more mallets than Homewood Flossmore did when I was a high school student. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing, what's a student going to do? Grab the easiest thing. Well, think about what that student would do if all they did was they took a drumstick a xylophone mallet, which would probably be easy to find, hard plastic mallet, and maybe a medium hard rubber mallet of some kind of temple block or marimba mallet. Now play the Imperata temple block part. Drumstick tip, drumstick butt, xylophone mallet, marimba mallet. Four completely different timbres that Claude T. Smith, no indication of what sound he wanted, the choice is up to the percussionist. And or if I'm on the podium, I have a vision in my ear of what I want to hear. But I want my student to give me some options before I either steer them one way or the other. Or like I, I said before, I want students to make decisions. And if I don't agree with it, I'm going to stop and go, I don't like the click of that xylophone mallet. Try the marimba mallet. It's going to be a darker color. And try to explain to them what I'm hearing. The third component is where you strike, which on all our percussion instruments, you know, that's what we teach, the characteristic general playing area. But all of our instruments also have the uncharacteristic playing area, some of which composers take advantage of. Play on the bowl of the timpani, play on the bell of the cymbal. They create different timbres. Now, it's very unlikely that the Emperor woodblock part is going to sound very good if the student plays on the end. But if they try that in an experiment, they're going to get a thumbs up from me. And then probably 
a direction to try something else. <laughs> and then the fourth component is the how you strike the type and velocity of the stroke and the sticking. And, and Scott, you know, this is really not a hard thing to do for, for people who are not percussionists because the great advantage with percussionists is that we can see how the tone is being produced. It's not this mystery inside the mouth about where the tongue is or where the shape of the mouth or the amount of air. It's right there for us to see. And if a student changes one or more of those four tone production factors, that will subtly or significantly change the tone color, the dynamic and or the articulation of the instrument. So liberating a percussionist's imagination <laughs> and developing their sensitivity to differences of timbres, to me, that's is of equal importance to the instruction that I try to provide to string and wind players about recognizing characteristic tone quality and discriminating differences in intonation. It's the same listening, but often percussionists aren't getting challenged that way. No, and I don't, I don't think, and, and this is why, this is why I wanted to ask you about this, because I mean, you want, you one listens to that and you're like the reaction that I'm here, that I feel right now, the, well, of course, but that didn't come to me, no. you know, we, we don't. And I think it's a significant that you mentioned, you know, from lesson one, well, that probably no. feeds into why they chose the instrument in the first place in many ways too. You're tapping into whatever made that person made that decision. I want to do this. So there is a, there's a second area. If we got time since we do, you want to talk percussion. Okay. The second thing I would offer is for me, and I was a terrible keyboard player until I was at Illinois, you know, back in those days, you could survive being less than mediocre on keyboard and still get into the school of music. Okay. Still get into the U of I top band. Yeah. <laughs> mediocre keyboard player. Um, but I've come to find that as a teacher that learning to play a keyboard percussion instrument, I think is similar to learning to drive a car. You have to learn to keep your eyes on the road, on the music, while still operating all the controls down here without making mistakes yeah. and, and finding the correct targets. And we don't want drivers staring at the keyboard <laughs> and we don't want drivers that are trying to make a right turn, but they end up shifting the position of the steering wheel. We need to, to learn how to, to move. So here's what I recommend. Break keyboard exercises, even for developing high school players, into three groups. The first ones would be simply totally memorized exercises. No music, no music stand. These are simply designed to develop skills in moving around the instrument, body position, foot position, hand position, stickings. And they could start as simply as you're playing very slow quarter notes on C. And then you move up to D and move back to C. And you're looking at the keyboard. All a student there is learning this is the distance. And you're looking at this nice, relaxed stroke. They've got good body position. They've got good height off the keyboard, everything they need to look at to learn that part of the instrument. And then you can widen that D and go up to E and make it a third. Or you can go the other way with his left hand, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can go both directions. Or you can make it more difficult and say, okay, we're going to move to the bottom end of the instrument. I'd like you to move up the instrument slowly 
two notes per bar, play all the F sharps and C sharps. Well, those are easy to spot even if you're looking at the keyboard because of the outlay of the upper keyboard. Right. It forces a student to move. How many students have you seen playing octaves on a xylophone, but they're still standing in the middle? Of Far, the too many. Right? Far too and many. Far too many. their hands are out of position. So you're encouraging them to move. And then, of course, you can build in simple scale exercises. The second exercise is of the opposite. Um, I wrote a whole series of these for the middle school teachers in 204, and I call them find Waldo exercises. Okay. So there's a music stand, and there may or may not be anything on it, but as a teacher, you're telling the student, you have to look here. These exercises are designed to develop the ability to read and associate vertical pitch movement with stickings and to build the confidence that a student needs to use their peripheral vision to find the bar locations. And that skill obviously transfers to timpani, temple blocks, tom-toms, you name it. It's mm -hmm. not just keyboard. So you might start with a student standing in the middle of the instrument and you ask them, put your mallet on an F sharp. Again, that's easy for a student to see out of the peripheral vision. Can you put your left hand mallet on an F sharp? So they're gonna to have to reach further. So very slow things like that. Can you put your mallet on an F? Harder to do, but you still have the upper keyboard as a frame of reference. Asking a student to put their left hand mallet on an A without, mm -hmm. so you're developing that student's confidence. You can also work it the other way. You have a student stare at the music stand and say, Put your mallet wherever you'd like. Clunk. What pitch are you on? B flat. Mm. Right. Develop that confidence or whatever it be. Then you combine those two, the third component. That this would be the last part. Mm. If you simply combine those skills, so you, you create an exercise that incorporates visually focusing on the music while utilizing your peripheral vision and your oral skills to identify and confirm you played the right thing. And at the same time, you're developing sticking techniques like uh, um, even in, odd out, that kind of thing. Okay. So you, you write an exercise, no clef, but the notes are on the bottom space and the third space. And so the exercise might start out two snare drums. One snare's off, one snare's on. It's an exercise that's simple, but you don't allow a student to play all right hand, left hand. They've got to move. They're going to hear the difference in the timbre, and they're making the association. The pitch goes up. I'm moving to the right. The pitch goes down to the left. And big targets, right? Mm -hmm. Confidence. Yeah. If they're successful, have them play the same thing on two wood blocks. Smaller targets, still easy to see in your peripheral vision, but smaller targets, but two pitches. Then have them play it on F sharp, the bottom space, C sharp, harder, smaller targets, but easy because of the keyboard positioning. Then play it on F and C. Those are you just develop exercises like that. And, and you obviously can make it harder and more notes the more the student has success. If you want to ask, add another component, tell the student you were very successful in playing those two wood blocks, that little exercise, I'm going to walk back to the podium in the band room 
and conduct you from 25, 30 feet away. And I'm going to change tempos. You must watch your music. And now you have to split your peripheral vision looking down and up at the same time because you have to follow the tempo. I've had success developing students' keyboard skills because too often we're trying to get them to read and play at the same time. It's two separate, two separate problems. Well, that's, I, I really appreciate that. Cause yeah, that's one of those things. And in recent years, starting percussionist myself and, and how to tackle that very thing that you're talking about. So that's, that's extremely useful. And I'm sure our, our listeners say the same. And like what, I say, Scott, it, that skill isn't just a keyboard skill. It's a timpanist skill, mm-hmm. temple block skill. It's multiple percussion. It's that, can you associate vertical movement on the keyboard, on the staff with vertical movement of your hands? I'm sure you've seen a lot of students, you give them a two pitch tom-tom exercise. If you tell them just play the rhythm, they'll nail it. Right. If you tell them to play the pitches, they either get mixed up in reading the pitch movement or they haven't developed habits in sticking that just flow like right hand sticking on snare drum. There are mm-hmm. similar sticking patterns to develop on multiple percussion things that should be habitual. Students haven't developed those. Absolutely. Well, it's definitely a great help for all of that. Well, Gosh, sir, I, we could go on all night and who knows, we might even have to have you on to, to get to the stuff we never even got to. But uh, again, thank you so, so much for being here. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I know anyone listening um, would feel the same and gotten a lot of out of that, too. So we really, really appreciate uh, you coming here tonight. So thank you again for that. And uh, I, I want to thank uh, Don Stinson for letting me mind the virtual store this evening. I appreciate that trust. Um, and thank you for everybody here for listening and, and doing, doing the work that you're doing um, for both for bands and for kids. So again, my name is Scott Barnes, and this has been the Bandmasters. <laughs>